So I mentioned earlier, first service, I, uh, I like the kids' messages better than mine. And uh, it's always good to know that we start them off young, learning the wonderful stories about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in the ninth chapter today. As we go through each week a different chapter, we discover different things about this new covenant, uh, new high priest, uh, about Jesus and how his, uh, everything about him seems to be better than the things of the, underneath the old covenant. Um, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 9. Years ago, um, our daughter Kylie got her a gift. I can't remember if it was for Christmas or for her birthday or whatever. It was an easy bake oven. And uh, you've, you, I don't know if you ladies have ever had an Easy Bake Oven or, or if you've ever eaten from an Easy Bake Oven, but, but it came with this little package of uh, a cake mix, and you were supposed to add water to it, put it in this little metal pan, and put it in the Easy Bake Oven. And when you turn it on, it's heated by a light bulb. And so you cook your food by a light bulb. I wasn't for sure how this was actually going to turn out. And so we kind of watched it through the little window, and you see it starting to rise and to get brown until it's about done. And, and uh, you know, then the anticipation of eating that wonderful meal that was just prepared for you. And, and I remember taking out, uh, out of the, the, the little bitty oven, and we get to sample a little bit of it. it. To me, it was a little bland, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, it was a little sticky, not fully cooked all the way through but but then again what was i anticipating you know i mean it's just it's a play oven it's a toy it's it's a it's an kind of like a copy of the real thing but not really the real thing you know if we wanted the real thing then maybe we would have cooked it in a real oven you know on a real stove and we could do those things now my daughter has advanced from the easy bake oven to where she cooks now and does a wonderful job using an oven and a stove and all the goodies that go with it in a real live kitchen and the food is so much better but what are we going to anticipate when we know something really is not the real thing? Well, that's kind of the way it was under this old covenant, as the author here of Hebrews is telling us. It's just a copy. It's an imitation. It's not the real deal to forgive sins. It was set up by God to kind of give them an understanding of what it's going to be like when the real covenant is established under the Messiah who was going to come and he was going to then create a sacrifice that was going to cover over our sins for all time. Well, we look through Jesus and we find that God, in essence, makes a final payment for our sins. Because there had to be a penalty and a payment for sin. And we know that from the very beginning with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Because of sin, you're going to die. And so death has to come. Something has to die to pay for the sin. And so God establishes with Moses and the people of Israel a covenant that's based upon death, based upon a sacrificial system, that there was going to be blood that was shed because of the sins of the people. But it's just an imitation. It's just a copy. It's a shadow. Those are the kinds of words that he used in chapter 8, and we see that as well here in chapter 9. And so we want to look this morning at, at both, the, both sacrificial systems of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and what the difference is in reality. So I want to take us a look back at the Old Covenant first. And as already mentioned, it's been a shadow, it's a copy, it's not the real thing. So it is, it's really an ineffective antidote for sin. 
It could postpone the penalty for sin for a year or at least until you sinned again and then you had to wait another year or so you know, time-wise depending on when you sinned before you could offer up another sacrifice on that day of atonement to cover your sins for the past year. The first covenant provided both regulations for worship as well as a place for worship. So it told them what they were supposed to do in worship and how they were supposed to sacrifice, and it also set up a location in which they were supposed to do that. And so God commanded that that they would worship Him with certain sacrifices, but also where they would do it in this earthly tent in which was called a tabernacle. But this tabernacle was temporary. And the earthly tabernacle belonged of this world. It was an earthly thing. But Jesus ministers in heaven, and he ministers in a tabernacle that was not created or built or made by human hands. Listen to what Hebrews 9.24 says. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with the hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So in this ineffective antidote for sin, there was established an ineffective sanctuary. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. We see that he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and the Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, the old tabernacle, it, it had two parts to it. I've got a diagram that we'll kind of look up here on the, on the screen in just a second. In the first section, it, it's located uh, just, you, you walked into the area, and there was a court around this tabernacle that everybody could gather around. It didn't matter whether you were male or female, Jew or Gentile, as long as you stayed outside of this tabernacle, this tent. But inside it, we have this separate little courtyard, an area that they, that they called the holy place. And this holy place was approximately 30 feet long by 15 feet wide uh, and, and 15 feet uh, high. Or we'd say 20 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. That's this holy place. And it was a room that contained certain articles. There was the lampstand, which I made reference to earlier, about the, uh, a golden lampstand that stands six feet tall, and it's got seven candles on it. It's the menorah that they used, and it was made purely out of gold. Now, I, I told on Wednesday night that the, uh, the, the people of Israel today are trying to prepare themselves for another time when they're going to have a temple in Jerusalem. And so I got to see this golden lampstand, which they have just made in recent years to be one of these articles that goes in here. But the lampstand was in there, and there's another table as well that's covered with gold, and on it is where they placed the bread 
of the presence of God. It was made out of the manna in which they would eat, and it sat there all week. Now, the lampstand, it brought light into this holy place. And all the candles were lit that were there, uh, and, and it brought light into there. They had no other way of having light. Inside the most holy place, the second section, the light that was brought forth in there was not from the candle, but it was from God in his own presence, and the glory of God, or the Shekinah glory, was what lit up the second room. But we have this lampstand, and we have this, this table of bread, in which was placed every Saturday or every Sabbath. The priest would go in, and they would replace that bread, and then they would eat the other bread that was given. Uh, there was a curtain then that separated this holy place from the most holy place. It was the, the, there was a difference here, and, it, and it's this curtain that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be able to go through this curtain into the very presence of God because he would allow his glory to settle in that room of the most holy place. The veil that was set apart there separated God from the rest of mankind, giving us an indication that, that we could not be within his presence. And the only way that the high priest could go into that place, into the most holy place, was once a year after he had already cleansed himself and offered up a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins, and then he could take that blood in and offer it up. And then he would go back out and sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people and take the blood of that animal in and offer it as a sacrifice to God as well. So there was a separation between God's presence and the rest of people. And it symbolized, this, this, this curtain did, the barrier between a holy God and a sinful people. Now the golden altar of incense really was not inside of the most holy place, but it was right at that curtain. And it was used only one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. And the incense would then be burned to represent a purification process uh, for the, the, the priest and the people as they would go in before God. Um, and it stood there on the outside of the holy place. Now inside the most holy place was this one article called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that was made purely out of gold. It was, it was, it was encased in gold. And, and on the top it had a, a, a lid, which they called the mercy seat. And on that were affixed two angels, or cherubim, that were there with their wings spread out. Now it was upon this, this cherubim and the mercy seat of this is where the priest, the high priest would take and he would offer up the sacrifice of the blood of the bull and the goat. And each year he would then spread it out on that. Now inside this ark, everybody's always wondering what is inside the ark. But we find out what it is, not only here in Hebrews, but also back in Exodus chapter 25, we discover all the things that are there. Uh, and, and what's in there is a golden jar that was filled with manna. Now, if you remember the manna, that was what God fed the people on a daily basis while they traveled for those 40 years in the wilderness. They'd walk out of their tent in the morning and there would be settled on the ground manna. And they could gather that up and they could keep it and they would make their meal out of it all day. But they could not store it for tomorrow. If they tried to do that, it would turn into maggots. And so they just took what they needed because God would provide for their daily needs. And then on Friday night, they could gather up enough for Saturday as well, and it would be fine. 
So they, they put a jar of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant to remind them that God always provides daily. Then there was another uh, item that was in there, and it was Aaron's staff that budded. Now, if you remember the story about Aaron's staff and how it flowered and, and produced the almonds, it was right after uh, Korah had raised up a rebellion against Moses, and he wanted to establish himself as the leader of the people and take them back to Egypt rather than being out in the wilderness traveling around and, and, and just living until they die there. And so Korah set up a rebellion against it, and God was a little upset. And so he said to Korah, all right, you guys who want to follow Korah, you draw this line in the sand, and they stand on that side. And Moses and Aaron, you make sure you stand on this other side. And anybody who wants to follow you as your leader, Moses, they're to stand with you. So there was quite a few people that stood with Korah, about 250. And then God said, okay, if you're going to follow Moses and me, then you'll follow us. But if you want to follow Korah, and God will determine what will take place. And so as they divided themselves up and chose a leader, the earth opened up and it swallowed up Korah and his people. And God sent fire down and burned up the 250 who were following him as well. So God chose Moses to be the leader. The people understood that. Well, the next day, he wants to establish for them who is going to lead in the process of worshiping him before him in the tabernacle. So each tribe was to select one of the men that was going to be their leader, and he was supposed to bring his staff to Moses and write and engrave his name in that staff. And so they did, and they all brought them in there. And Aaron, who was the tribe of Levi, brought his staff and Moses put them in the tent of meeting, and then, and then that night they waited. And the next morning Moses goes in, and he brings out the twelve staves, and one of them had flowered, it had budded. And not just budded, but it had almonds that had grown on it. And it had engraved on that staff, Aaron. And so God had determined that Aaron was going to be the one who was going to be the high priest that would lead the people in their worship. And it was going to be through his family and his descendants that this priesthood would continue. And so they wanted this staff inside the Ark of the Covenant reminding them that this is God's choice and the manner in which he wanted them to worship him through the tribe of Levi being the high priest. And then there was one other item that was inside this Ark of the Covenant. And it was the stone tablets upon which the law had been written. And so they carried within this ark wherever they went. And if they went into battle, it went before them. And inside were always carried these things. And so this was inside the most holy place. And this was one of the most holy items that God would want. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we're told that God that they wanted the high priest to come in on the Day of Atonement and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull and the goat upon the mercy seat of this Ark of the Covenant. Well, a second item that we need to discuss within this ineffective um, sanctuary is also ineffective ceremonies. It's not just what goes in, but it's what they did while they were there. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 10 begins by saying these. 
These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this... By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now the priest would enter daily into this first outer section, the holy place, and they would carry on their, their ministry and their responsibilities that were taking place there. They would make sure that the lampstand was lit and that it had oil and it was always uh, alighted. They would also then, on Saturday or the Sabbath, they would take in new bread of the presence and place that on the table there as well. And then they would eat that bread. And they would then make sure that on that Day of Atonement that the incense was burned on the altar of incense. And even though they followed this practice, this pattern had been established by God year after year after year, it resulted in a relationship that was no closer to God than it had been before. God still was separated from the people. And they still had their sins that had to be atoned for every year. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place, and only he could enter there one time a year if he'd already made his own washings and ceremonial purifications and sacrificed a bull for his own sins and brought the blood in first before he brought in the sacrifice for the people. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, it indicates that he entered twice on that day of atonement. The first time for his own sins and the second time for the sins of the people. And they used the blood that showed that the priests had offered a sacrifice for the sins, but it did not bring them any closer or any other access to God. But what it did was it prepared the people for the opportunity that one day there would be a sacrifice that would allow them to have a relationship with God that would be closer and that we would be able to walk into His presence without sin or shame or guilt of all those things. Listen to what it says to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's talking about Christ. And Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And under the old covenant, the high priest could only atone for the sins that were committed in ignorance. We see that in, in, in verse 7. It, it was sins that were done unintentionally. You see, the sacrifice was only for those sins. If you had sinned with intent premeditated that you're going to do this, there was no sacrifice for that kind of sin. Even though the high priest would go in every year to offer up an atonement sacrifice, it was not for intentional sins. That sacrifice of atonement was only for sins that had been done in ignorance or unintentionally. But under this new covenant with Jesus, all sins 
unintentional as well as intentional sins, deliberate sins, we find forgiveness. So, if the old sacrifices could not bring common people closer to God, then really what good were they? They just bought time is all they did. They were just kind of waiting a little bit longer until the scripture here says a reformation. Reformation means that he's going to change the covenant somehow and he's going to bring in a new covenant and a new relationship and a new aspect of worship. And that is where we are today when we look at Hebrews here. He's talking about this new covenant. These gifts and these sacrifices, they were imperfect and they were temporary. They were imperfect because they weren't able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Testament individual, they never had a clear conscience because they didn't have a sacrificial system that took care of that. But the sacrifice, while it was temporary, it was applied over and over again until something perfect and more pure would come into play. And even though those sacrifices could not cleanse the conscience, they produced in essence, this longing for it, and it points to the upcoming change that would take place in Jesus. The regulations under the Old Covenant were only regulations for the body. They provided ceremonial purity. The food, the drink, the washings, they had benefits that were effective for the body itself, but they could not bring liberty to the spirit of man. But only Christ can do that. So that brings us to this next section here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. It, it's going to tell us about this effective remedy for sin. God puts in place a way that we're going to have this, this change that's going to redeem us from all sin for all time. And Jesus offers up this remedy for sin which cleanses not only the sin of the body but even the conscience. In Hebrews 10, we'll discover that we're going to have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So here is this remedy that affects the conscience. It's found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, Jesus came as high priest to accomplish something for his people that had never been done before. That, that those who would put their belief in him, that his sacrifice on the cross would then bring them permanent redemption of their sins. And, and although Jesus has provided the blessings, not everybody wants to experience it for some reason. And so we are encouraged to urge one another towards this. And so we look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 through 24, and we see that he's, he's challenging us that once we've had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from this guilty conscience, that we need to challenge one another to be faithful to, to the timing in which he's going to come again, to hold each other accountable to this. 
Jesus came as high priest through a greater and a more perfect sacrificial system and a tabernacle that is perfected that was never made by human hands because it is the tabernacle of heaven itself. And his ministry does not deal in shadows or copies or imitations, but rather with the realities. And he ministers in heaven before God and he ensures our acceptance into heaven because of his sacrifice. Jesus works consisted of offering his own blood rather than the blood of goats and bulls and his offerings and sacrifices require no repetition year after year but once for all and so what happened when the old testament worshipers offered their sacrifices their sacrifices it sanctified the worshipers so that they were outwardly outwardly clean and so they offered up the bulls and the goats and with the ashes of the heifer, and not only were they sprinkled upon the altar there, but they were also sprinkled upon the people. And, and then the, the, he would come out as well after he'd offered up the sins of the, a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel, and he would take some of that blood and he would lay his hands on another goat, and he would confess the sins of the people before God upon this new goat, And then he would give it to a man who was selected by the people to take that goat out into the wilderness and to shoo it away, to carry away the sins of the people, and he was called the scapegoat. And so their sins were removed from them, at least for a period of time, until the next sacrifice needed to be made. Now, there are three things that make Christ cleansing, I think, very effective. The first is this. His sacrifice and his offering was made with an eternal spirit because he is eternal. His sacrifice was also better because he didn't offer up a substitution for his sins. He offered up himself, his own body, his own blood to be shed as a sacrifice for us rather than a a goat or a bull or a dove or something else. Also, Christ offered up his own unblemished character. Jesus was morally perfect. He had no sin in his life. He was pure and he was innocent of all things. And that in and of itself was of immense value. And so Jesus' sacrifice produces for us not only a cleansing of body of sin, but of conscience. And so we no longer then are ruled by the flesh, but by a spirit who lives within us. So we discover here in Hebrews that animal sacrifices cannot remove sin, but the sacrifice of Jesus' own body upon a cross can. And the cleansing that produced a new, a new aim and a new vision, and instead of producing acts that lead to death, His sacrifice produced an act of service that we now have an opportunity to serve a living God. Not only did he offer this this remedy of our conscience, but there was a remedy that was offered for forgiveness. Let's look at verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, 
the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels that were used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so on the basis of giving himself as a sacrifice, Jesus becomes a mediator between us and God. And he becomes this mediator of a new covenant that is established, a covenant that is going to bring ransom for us and free us from our captivity to sin and remove our sin from our lives forever. The old covenant had no provision for removing the offenses to God that were done intentionally. But his death, Jesus removed the consequences of human sin for all who will put their trust and their faith in him. The purpose of the new covenant that Jesus established was to provide an eternal inheritance for everyone who believes. Because of Christ, sin no longer can keep us out of heaven and can keep us from receiving this wonderful and divine blessing. Now, the death of Jesus not only sets believers free from their sins, but it also activated a positive benefit of this new covenant. The Greek language uses this word here, uh, diatheke, which we translate covenant. But in classical Greek, that word diatheke was often used only for establishing a will or a last testament. So somebody who was a testator of their life, and they are going to bequeath all that they own and their, their blessings to somebody else, would write out a last will and testament. We still do that today. We have a will that testifies that the things that we have that belong to us, we are not going to pass on to somebody else. But that will only comes into effect when? When the one who made it dies. You can't make a will go into effect until that person has deceased. And so Jesus creates this new covenant, this new will, where we now inherit the blessings of heaven, but we only get to do that if he were to die, in which he did by offering himself as a sacrifice. Verse 17 explains that death was necessary for a will to take effect. And in verse 18, it refers back to Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, where Moses describes the act of ratifying the old covenant by the sprinkling of that sacrificial blood on the people and on the altar. And notice that what he says there in, in verse 20, he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And when you read that, and you go back into Exodus, and you read that covenant that God is establishing, it sounds very very familiar to Jesus there at the Last Supper when he says, I am entering into a new covenant with you and the blood that is mine, which is represented by this fruit of the vine that we are drinking, is the blood of this new covenant for you. And my body, which is represented by the blood or by, by the bread, 
is, is the body that is broken for you. And so he's saying, my life is being given as a sacrifice, as a death, so that you can enter into this new relationship and inherit the blessings of this new covenant. So the covenant by sprinkling the sacrificial blood on the people of the altar and the acts of sacrifice were important in inaugurating this covenant between God and Israel and the initiation of the first covenant demanded the presence of blood or death. And so verse 22 draws this general conclusion that the law requires that everything be cleansed with blood. And so by His blood we are healed. Now, some Jewish rituals, they required specific use of water, fire, and even flour. But every day in the tabernacle, blood was used as a sacrifice. So the concluding statement in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins comes from the idea in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 where it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The act of shedding blood referred to the death of the sacrificial animal. And the application of the blood was secure the forgiveness. It was placed on the people and upon the altar as representative of our forgiveness temporarily. But forgiveness doesn't become a reality for all eternity until the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. So not only do we have this remedy for our conscience and for our forgiveness, but there's also a remedy that is needing no repetition. He doesn't have to do this every year. He doesn't have to do this every day, but once and for all. Listen to what it says in verses 23 through 28. Thus... It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are anticipate, eagerly waiting for Him. So Jesus' sacrifice doesn't have to be repeated year after year. It's a once-for-all sacrifice for us. He uses these words, heavenly things. They symbolize this spiritual sphere in which the believers enjoy our atonement. Christians, we can have our hearts sprinkled and our conscience sprinkled with the blood of Christ. When we have that done, we now can approach the very throne room of heaven. We can enter into the presence of God because what Jesus has done. There is no longer any curtain that we have to pass through. Hebrews 10 will tell us that it is the blood of Christ is the curtain in which we pass through to enter into the presence of, of, of God. 
So the better sacrifice was the death of Jesus. After his death at Calvary, Christ enters into the very presence of God and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of heaven. And now he appears before God on our behalf, interceding for us daily. And he represents us. And he accomplishes what we could never accomplish on our own because of our sinfulness. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now these final four verses here in Hebrews 9, they, they begin to express to us an additional explanation of the finality uh, of, 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 and the voluntariness of Jesus' death. The priest under the order of Aaron, they made these annual trips into the most holy place, and each time they had to carry with them the blood of the sacrificed animal for their sin and for the sins of the other people. And it had to be repeated every year. But Jesus makes this one final sacrifice for all time. So he doesn't have to do that. If he were to have to do that, it would be him suffering day after day after day since the very beginning of creation. So God says, no, this is one final sacrifice and allows him to now live again in heaven. The, the, the priest under the Old Testament covenant, they came with blood from the animal sacrifices that had to, to be slain involuntarily. I don't think that the bull ever said, you know, this year I think I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice. I think that bull probably ran when he saw the priest coming. And the goat surely wasn't going to give himself either. They, they weren't voluntarily offering themselves, but Jesus voluntarily offers his life when he didn't have to. You see, Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's under this stress of what's going to happen to him physically, knowing that he's trying to be faithful to his Father in heaven. And so within his prayer, he makes this statement there in, in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, now this cup is the wrath of God upon which he's going to sacrifice himself and take on the sins of the world. He says, remove this cup from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He is voluntarily going to give his life on the cross for us. Not because physically as a man he wanted that to happen, because none of us want to offer up and go through the extreme pain and torture and sacrifice and death that he had to face. But he says, I want your will to be accomplished. And if I need to offer myself that way, then so be it. And he offers it up voluntarily. Now the Jewish people who received this letter of Hebrews, they would very much well be acquainted with the practices and the repetition of sacrifice. And they would need to understand why Jesus' sacrifice once had the ability to cover all sins. And so verse 26 implies that the repeated offering would have involved Jesus continually suffering. And God doesn't want him to have to do that. And so if his death was repeated over and over again, it would need to have been repeated over and over again from the very beginning of creation, from the foundation and when sin entered into this world. But the timing of this event occurs under God's perfect timing and in his wisdom. 
But not only that, but verses 27 and 28, we contrast the death of mankind and the death of Jesus. And the death of human beings was appointed. We are going to die. There's no way around it. You and I will face death at some point in our life, whether, whether it be this week or in 50 years. We'll face death. We can't escape it. The only escape would be if Jesus comes before then. But it has been appointed that man is going to die. But not only that, the fact that judgment follows death speaks volumes to us. Because when we die, we are going to either face heaven or hell. And based upon our obedience either to the law, which brings death, or to Christ, which brings life. It's what's going to make the determining factor. Jesus died to take away our sins and to bear the sins of many people. He came as a ransom for us to pay the price that we needed to have paid at a time that was predetermined by God that He would give His life. And Jesus is going to once again return to this world but not to sacrifice Himself again but in judgment and to redeem those who are His and to bring them into salvation to experience eternal life. Now Jewish Christians in the first century, they were acquainted with this system of worship and it reminded them of their sin. And the individual Jew, he could not go into the very presence of God. However, that once a year thing with the high priest, he could be represented there. But now with Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace in heaven without any fear or shame or guilt because He has cleansed us by His blood and He offers us up. So the ministry of Jesus has changed everything. This new covenant that He offers is much better than the old covenant because I don't have to worry about sacrificing year after year but just to accept the sacrifice once and for all that Jesus made. And His death brings about complete and permanent forgiveness. Wednesday, January 13th, 1982, there was uh, uh, an Air Florida Boeing 737 that was leaving the airport there at Washington, D.C. And as just as it had taken off, something went wrong, and it crashed into the 14th Street Bridge there on the Potomac River in the icy, wintry river at that time. In that crash... There were over 70 people who were killed immediately. But there were six who had somehow found a part of the plane that they could cling to and stay above water as they were waiting and anticipating someone rescuing them. Well, the Coast Guard and the Park Police brought their helicopters out and they were trying to reach out to the people and they let down a rope with a safety ring that was there that would begin to bring them one at a time. And each time, one of the men who was there, he would reach and grab the ring and he would put it on somebody else and they would be lifted up and out of the river to their safety. But as the helicopter came back the sixth time, he was no longer there. And he had drowned in the water. The thing is, these people who were saved, they didn't even know the man's name. And he sacrificed his own life for their safety and their salvation. 
And what a wonderful sacrifice it was. But it didn't accomplish everything they needed. There's only one sacrifice that does that. And it's Jesus. And he left the glorious place of heaven. And it's as if he dove into the icy waters as we're drowning. And he places upon us the opportunity for salvation. But the difference is, is we know him. We know his name. And we know his sacrifice. But not only did he die when he entered into this world, but he rose back to life. And because of his resurrection, we too can embrace a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, and we can also live eternally because of him. He surrendered his own life, and now he holds out to us that life-saving ring if we will just accept it and live but the question is will you will you receive the gift that he's offering through his sacrifice will you embrace the blood of Christ as it covers over all of your sins will you allow his sacrifice of his body and his blood to be something that was valuable enough that you're willing to give everything away to get it and to live for Him redeemed. But that's a choice you've got to make. I can't grab you and pull you out of salvation. Only He can. We're going to have a closing song with Rob. But let's go ahead and, and pray. And then we'll turn it over to Him. Father, we are thankful that you have loved us, that you have created a, a, a new testament, a, a new will, a new opportunity, a new covenant through the blood of your son Jesus and the sacrifice of his life on a cross that we can find permanent redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Not only that, but the gift of your spirit to live within us and to, to help change our conscience. That, Father, no longer will we live by this flesh, but we will live by your spirit and the things that we want to do and say. And that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.